God? I thought you were just. How could this have happened? I didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? I thought God was supposed to reward good people and punish bad people. God, if you're good, why am I suffering like this? Good morning. Before we get into Job, I wanted to share with you on a week from this Tuesday, as you know, is election day. And I am really concerned for our nation, as I'm sure many of you are, with all that's going on. It's, it's just crazy. It, it's almost insanity, it seems like. So on election day, which is a week from this Tuesday, I feel the Lord has led me to invite you and for us to pray for our nation from 6 o'clock in the morning till noon or any segment thereof. So I'm going to take those six hours and I'm going to break them up into our segments. We'll, we'll uh, read. There's a lot of, I'm, I'm stirred because just lately I'm going through Second Chronicles and there's places in the Bible where you have these like Hezekiah or Daniel or Solomon and they're interceding for the, for the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel was far from a perfect nation. <laughs> they had a lot of problems and so you have these men that are, that are raised up that are interceding. We're going to read portions of those, those like Daniel's prayer, Hezekiah's, Solomon's and each hour we'll read a little bit and then I just want to pray for our nation, and I think that's the most important thing that we can do. So that'll be on Tuesday, November 6th, from 6 in the morning to 6 a.m. to noon. If you can come for any, any part of that, any hour, any half hour, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. We just, I, I just want to lift our, our, our nation to the, to the Lord in prayer on that particular day because I think that, um, well, I don't think that. I know it. We need prayer. Our nation needs prayer. So if you can join us, that'd be great. So we're in part four of... This eight-part st- uh, study on the book of Job. So if you've missed any previous ones, they're online. We have a reading plan that I put together so you can read ahead. And I hope that you'll do that and pray. There's no way we can go through every verse here. Uh, and today we're not going to do that very much at all because uh, this is the third of three dialogues that are taking place, these debates, and it's the same old, same old. So well, we're going to take it a little differently this morning and talk about the providence of God. So the Bible project that we looked at that video to begin, I love what it says. It says, what was this all about? From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not fair or just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He is dynamically interacting with the whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. Job couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to, unquote, and I'd say neither can we. And so the book of Job is an invitation to trust God's wisdom in suffering, trials, tribulation, whatever it is, that we're going to trust God's wisdom. Someone else said, quote, man simply cannot tie all the loose ends of the Lord's purposes together. In suffering, we must learn to trust God no matter what the circumstances Unquote. So again, it's an invitation. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, or your devices, let's go to Job chapter 23. This is Job's response in this third dialogue. I just want to read a few of the verses in Job 23 to start out. Then I'll pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to bless this time in his word. So Job 23 and verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. 
My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Verse 13. But he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrified me. Because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. You have blessed us with an abundance of opportunities to read your word and hear your word and memorize. They're just abounding. But, Lord, if we hear but don't hear under, when our lives are not submitted to the things that you've given to us, you said if we hear but don't do it, it's like building our lives on sand. So, Lord, this morning I'm praying by your Holy Spirit you would anoint the things that I've prepared. You'd break them fresh and feed us. May we receive the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. May your word find good soil that produce fruit, 30, 60, whatever you would, Lord, have for us this morning. May we hear, hear under, and be blessed this morning as we leave, having heard from you, and knowing, Lord, that as you speak to our hearts, it just reamplifies for us how much you love us, how much you care for us, all the things you've done for us in wanting to bless our lives in all of time and into eternity. So, Lord, we look to you now, the author and finisher of our faith. Bless now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Job 1 and 2, we looked at the prologue. The prologue, prologue gives us the divine perspective. It sets the stage for everything that follows. In Job 3 through 27, now we're on the third dialogue, these three cycles of dialogues and debates. We looked at when life hurts, the pain, chapters 3 through 14. And that would be talking about pain management. This is the earthly perspective, the human perspective. So we had when life hurts, the pain. Secondly, last week, part three of, the, of this series, but the second of three dialogues, we looked at when you're all alone, and we talked about prayer. Now, prayer is what I would call the peace maintenance. As it says in Isaiah, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Now, remember, the invitation in Job is to trust the wisdom of God. So prayer is essential to that. We're going to talk about the providence of God this morning. Prayer is an essential part of our partnership. We're not going to talk much about that. But last week we did talk about prayer, the importance of prayer, the power of prayer, the purity of prayer. So this morning it's the third dialogue. And for some reason here, um, Zophar has excused himself. So we've had three, but now we have just two left in this third dialogue. And what I want to look at is when life is not fair or the providence of God, what I would call God is the promise maker. And so we want to keep our eyes fixed on him who made the promise. So round three, for some unknown reason, Zophar is not a part of it. But let me give you just an outline of these chapters that you, I hope you read ahead this morning. That we're going we're gonna to kind of, let me give you the something. <laughs> so Eliphaz chapter 22 
And it's the same old, same old, rebukes and accusations against Job. So it goes like this. He's saying, you're not innocent, and it's evidenced by your afflictions, Job, in chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. He says, you do not fear God, evidenced by what you have not done. You haven't done this, you haven't done that. And by the way, they're all lies because Job lived like that. But he's accusing him now. It's gotten a lot harsher. Verses 4 through 11. He says, Eliphaz says to Job, you're not getting away with anything. God sees your wickedness. And then you need to return to God. And if you return to God, he will restore you. So that's what Eliphaz is saying in chapter 22. Chapter 23 and 24, Job responds and says, if I could find God and, can, and present my case, I know he'd vindicate me. This is, a, again, a theme throughout all of these dialogues. He says, if I have not turned, I have not turned away from God, but I'm still terrified of him. We'll look at that in a moment. He says, why should the wicked sin with impunity? Again, a, concur, a theme that continues. He said, they should be punished, and I know that eventually they will be. So that's what Job says, 23 and 24. Bildad comes, same old, same old, accusations, rebukes against Job. He says, God is great, but let me tell you, Job, you're just a worm. God's great, you're a worm. Now, Job responds in chapters 26 and, 7, and 27, says, no, yes, God is great, but you're the worm. You're, hel- you're worthless. You're, help- you're-, you're not helpful at all to me. I am not wicked, I am innocent. Job responded, I know what God will do to the wicked. So you're not telling me anything new, and you're accusing me of all these things that are not true. So these dialogues transition us into three monologues, Job, and then Elihu, and then God. Now the transition, look at chapter 26 and verse 3, because this is an important theme that will begin next week. In fact, the book is all about the wisdom of God. So in Job 26, 3, it says, Job says, have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? So Job said, have you counseled someone who has no wisdom? You're saying, I don't, and we'll get this next week, all these back and forth through the dialogue about wisdom. So wisdom and understanding have been a thread of contention throughout these debates, so Zophar in round one says to Job, chapter 11, we'll get, again, we'll get more into that next week, but he says this, an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. In other words, Job, you're foolish and you'll never be wise. He says, it's not going to happen. So Job says, no doubt you are the people and wisdom dies with you. So he's being very sarcastic. Well, surely you're the one that have wisdom. So this whole wisdom thing is what we're going to be going into next week in these monologues. So let me give you a little brief overview as you're reading for next week. In monologue number one, this is Job. Look at Job 28 and verse 12. Job 28, 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? So that's the question. Elihu in monologue number two. Look at Job 32 and verse seven. I said... And this is a young guy. He said, I said, age should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. So you guys should know better. You should know wisdom. You're the old guys. I'm the young guy. Uh, Verse 9 of chapter 32. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. So he said, well, you you should know it, but not, not the case here. Now look at Job 33 and verse 31. Again, Elihu, this young guy, he says, give ear, Job, listen to me. 
Hold your peace and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Hold your peace and I will teach you wisdom. Not going to happen, but that's what he's saying. So this whole wisdom thread, which is going to be the, the, really the foundational core theme, God's wisdom. So now we go to God's monologue. Look at chapter 38 and verse 36. This is God's question. Who has put wisdom, listen, in the mind? Who has put wisdom in the mind and or who has given understanding to the heart? So the mind and the heart, God's saying, who's done that? And obviously it's rhetorical. God does that. God puts wisdom in the mind and he gives understanding to the heart. Now hold on to that for a moment. File that because we're going to hit this again as we go through our study this morning. So what I want to talk to you about is the providence of God. Now, I'm going to give you a, few quote, a couple of quotes here about what providence means. By the way, I don't know if you read theology books. You might think, well, they're dry. No, they're not. Theology books are the best because they're all about God. Systematic theology books. They're usually about that thick, but you can just go to any topic you want and read about it. And I would encourage you to, to put, a, put a theology book as part of your regular reading. It's just the depths and riches are tremendous because it's all about God. It's the study of God systematically. So here's what Dr. Millard Erickson writes, quote, While creation is God's originating work with respect to the universe, providence is his continuing relationship to it. By providence, we mean the continuing action of God by which, and by the way, I, I uh, capitalized the words just to bring them out for us, by which he preserves in existence the creation he brought into being and guides it to his intended purposes for it. The word derives from the Latin providir, which literally means to foresee. But more than merely knowing about the future is involved. The word also carries the connotation of acting prudently or making preparation for the future, unquote. A second by A.A. A. Hodge, quote, a careful arrangement prepared beforehand for the accomplishment of God's predetermined ends, unquote. And finally, Dr. St. Thomas Aquinas writes this, the ordering of things to their end, the purpose for which they were created, unquote. And so the providence of God is this, my words, God is sovereign over all things, the natural world, which is the whole universe, the animal world, the angelic and demonic realms, that world, and all human beings. God who created all things also preserves, protects, provides, and purposes for all things, guiding them in fulfilling his plan in all of time and eternity. Amen. It's awesome. So, in Job, God and Satan, God is providentially in charge of the demonic realm. Can I hear an amen? In other words, confined always to only what God allows is Satan and all of his cronies, all of them, the demonic realm. When Jesus came, he spoke to those demons and they obeyed him. He's God. So we read in Job 1.12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has, that is Job, is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. And God basically limited Satan. He's not the opposite of God. He's created by God, and God is in charge of him. In 
Eliphaz in Job chapter 5. If you have your Bibles and, and you can go there, that's great. Your, your gadgets. Job 5 verse 8. But as for me, I would seek God. This is Eliphaz. And to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. The natural world. Verse 11, he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Mankind, all human beings. He frustrates, verse 12, the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. God's in charge. Job, all, all human affairs are ruled by divine providence. All of them. Job, in chapter 9, as far as the natural world and, again, mankind. Verse 4, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. Verse 8, he alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He's monotheistic. He alone, he is the creator. There is no other God. Job, now this is, a, again, right in line as I think about praying for America, praying for these elections. In Job chapter 12, verse 23, Job says this, he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. Every nation is under God's providential sovereignty. Job, in chapter 14, man... Uh, verse 1, man who is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. How many would say amen to that? <laughs> he comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Verse 5, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. God is the one who determines how long we live. Elihu, chapter 34 God guides without sin, and he holds all things together. So in this whole thing, God is not guiding, not causing sin. We'll look at that in another moment. Notice what it says in 34 verse 12. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? Question. Or who appointed him over the whole earth? Let me tell you, no one did. He's in charge. If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together. He holds Colossians, all things together. If God were to say, well, I'm going to just relax a moment, we're all poof, we're gone. He holds all things together. The very breath, our very breath is in his hands as we find in the book of Daniel. And man would return to dust. In Elihu's spiel, his monologue in chapter 37, beginning in verse 5. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. Verse 6. For he says to the snow, fall on the earth. Now, did you ever think about that when you're watching a snowstorm? God said, I want you to fall on the earth. Now, you think you're busy. <laughs> God's he's managing all the snow and the rain and everything. He's feeding the ravens. God's doing all that. His providential care and provision is called, in his sovereignty, is what God does. 
He says to the snowfall on the earth, likewise to the gentle rain and heavy rain of his strength. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. By the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen. Also with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds. He scatters his bright clouds. And they swirl about being turned by his guidance that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. God's in charge of the natural world, of the human world, of the demonic world, of the angelic world. He is in charge. And finally, chapter 38, Job, here we read, God speaking to Job, verse 12. He says, have you commanded the morning since the day, your days began? And the question here is asking, you know, can you do a better job of running the, running the, running the universe? Have, you, have the gates of death been revealed to you, Job? Have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the, of the earth? Tell me if you know this. Have you entered the treasury of snow? Or have you seen the treasury of hail? Which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. So that's an interesting passage right there. God has the hail, the natural forces. He is going to use them, and we know that from Revelation, powerfully to, to bring judgment on the earth. He says, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in the den? And God does that. He feeds them. And so in all this, this providence, just to get a feel, I'm going to give you three things this morning as I would simplify for me, and I hope for you, to understand the providence of God. And number one is this. Providence, God has a perfect plan. Can I hear an amen? In fact, on each one of these three, I go, amen. God has a perfect plan. Thank you. Now, it's not part perfect. It's not almost perfect. It is wholly and completely perfect. No flaws in it. The problem Job cannot perceive, the invisible hand of Almighty God, actively present and involved at every moment and in everything that is happening to him. That's the problem. He can't perceive God. He can't see the hand of God. What plan? What purpose? And we know, all of us, exactly what that feels like. When things are going on in our life, we can't understand what God's doing. We can't see his hand moving. In fact, we can't even perceive him. And so as we read to begin, I want to read again. Job chapter 23. Job answered and said, even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I'm gonna, I, I, it's like a legal idea here. I'm gonna, here. Here's the deal. And I know Eliphaz, Zophar, all these guys, you're saying this, but I know that God would vindicate what I'm saying. And he's wanting to be able to talk to God, hear from God, and present his case. He goes on in verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When, he's, when he works on his left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Now, Job said the same thing back in chapter 9. Job 9.10, he said, He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? So you get a feel here. Look at chapter 23 again, verse 13. But he is unique. And who can make him change? 
And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me. And many such things are with him. Therefore, verse 15, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak and the Almighty terrifies me because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. Job in his mind understands that what is happening to him is not random. It's not by chance. It's not by accident. It's not determined by some impersonal fate. He knows that these things are God's doing. That somehow this personal, powerful creator and sustainer has some kind of plan and purpose for Job's life through it. That's in his mind. In his heart. In his heart. Not being able to perceive God in it. Was very terrifying in his heart. It brought a lot of fear to his heart. In fact, he was in a very dark place and God allowed it. Is that not so true? In our minds, in my mind, I understand these things. I get them. It's what God, I know that. I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with that. But in my heart, when I can't perceive God's hand, when I can't see him, I don't understand what's going on. In my heart, it begins to bring a lot of fear and terror. It's a dark place. And we've all been there at one time or another. That's where Job is at. He can't perceive him. He can't understand it. And so there's this dark place that God allowed in his life. He didn't block it. He's in that place and God allows it. And my brothers and sisters, I hope that you can take heart and know this. God wants to take from your mind and bring it to your heart when you meet him in your dark place. That's what he does. And so we read Job 38. We read it before. Who has put wisdom in the mind? And who gives understanding to the heart? To the heart. God is the one who does that. 2 Samuel chapter 22, also in Psalm 18, verse 29. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. And then he says this. By you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Boy, that just flew off the pages to me as I was considering this whole thing of the mind and the heart. You enlighten my darkness. By you I can do these things that in my darkness, there's no way I can do that because God takes from my mind and brings it to my heart when I meet him. And that's what happened with Job. He met God in this whole place. So providence number one, God has a perfect plan. Secondly, God's will will prevail. Another amen. God's will will prevail. He has a perfect plan, and his will will be accomplished fully, completely, and perfectly. God works sovereignly within the choices that I make. God works sovereignly within the choice I make. Do I understand that? Absolutely not. But that's what he does. My choices are real. 
I make them, not God. And yet, I am never free in the sense of being outside of God's control. I never want to be outside of God's control, nor can I be. In some mysterious way, God is yet behind the scenes moving things along through every choice that I make, good and bad. Do I understand that? I don't. Let me read you a quote from Grudem, a guy that I love to read. He says this, quote, It seems better to affirm that God causes all things that happen, but that he does so in a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results, and for which we are held accountable. We are aware of no restraints on our will from God when we make decisions, and that is true. We're making decisions, they're real choices, and I am making them. Very aware. No restraints. Well, the devil made me do it. No, that's not what's going on. We make choices. Now he goes on. He didn't write that. That was my little commentary. He, said, he goes on. Exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices, Scripture does not explain to us, unquote. It's a mysterious thing. And yet, we're looking at these things this morning of the providential God, care and protection of God. It's real. He's sovereign over all things. Proverbs 19.21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Here's an interesting one. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, you think casting dice is sort of a, a crapshoot. It's like random, but that's not what the Bible says. Genesis 50, 20, you know it well. Joseph to his brothers said, as for you, you meant it for evil. Made those choices. Did what you did. But God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. The providence of God in evil decisions that were made. Nowhere in the Bible will you find God directly doing anything evil or taking pleasure in evil. Nor is God ever blamed for evil. James says that no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one's tempted when he's drawn away by what? His own desires and enticed. And then when desires are conceived, it gives, brings forth death. Sin, in which brings forth death. Now, as we make choices, they're real choices, and we're accountable for them. And yet God in his providence is still in control. Working all things together to bring about his perfect plan that will prevail. Now, a couple other thoughts I want to leave with you. These are things to chew on. If God does evil or causes evil, he is not good. He is not God. Quote, again from Grudem. If God does not use evil to fulfill his purposes, then there is evil in the universe that God did not intend, is not under his control, and therefore might not fulfill his purposes, and therefore we cannot know that all things work together for good. He goes on. We would have no guarantee that the evil might overrun things and or that he will be able to use it for his purposes or even that he can triumph over it, unquote. 
Something to chew on. Now, God doesn't directly, but God indirectly brings about some kind of evil, which is always done directly by the people or demons who choose to do it. Satan with Job, Joseph's brothers, David sinning. In all these matters, there's this mixture of evil that's being done that God's in. Erickson, another guy that I love as far as theologian, he says this, quote, there are several ways that God can and does relate to sin. Number one, prevent it with Abimelech is one, one thing that came to mind, Genesis. God can also permit it. Third, like with Joseph, he can direct it. Or he can limit it, as we saw in Job. Note that in each case, God is not the cause of human sin, but acts in relationship to it, unquote. So all through these dialogues in Job, it's crystal clear. People make choices and are held accountable by God for them. They're real choices. The third here, providence. God gave us his promise. God gave us his promise. The invisible hand of almighty God working through the hands of sinful men to finish his perfect plan from eternity past to fulfill his promise by prevailing over sin, Satan, death, and hell, paying the price for our redemption and glorifying his son, Jesus Christ. That's how God accomplished this amazing thing called salvation. God through sinful hands. You talk about not fair. Jesus suffering, but all according to God's perfect plan. Talk about beyond fair. My salvation through his suffering according to God's perfect plan. So let me, let me talk about this a little bit with you. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. This is Jesus speaking. But look it. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Talking about Judas. Accountable and responsible for the choice he made. And yet, God knew, he would, God knew that that would happen. John chapter 19, verse 24. They said therefore among themselves, as they're at the, the soldiers at the foot of the cross. They said among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, his garment. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and my, for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. They did it right according to what God said would happen, prophetically. That's why the prophetic word, as Peter said, is like a light shining in the darkness. God's in control, sovereign. He's got a perfect plan. His will will prevail. He's made us a promise. That's his providence. Now, I, as I was studying this, Acts, the beginning of Acts is filled with these whole ideas of the crucifying of Christ was through the hands of sinful men, but it was according to God's foreknowledge and, pro and, and, and counsel. Acts chapter 2, again, if you flip to these, I'll, I'll try and 
let you know. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Verse 23. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. God and sinful man providing through his plan our redemption. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. And here it is, which was what, when he was determined to let him go. Pilate has a determination. These guys have a determination. And God has a determination. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed. This is a fantastic little phrase. You killed the Prince of Life. Whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. See, the resurrection of each one of these, because God's plan was not thwarted. Yet now, brethren, I know, interesting, that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But these things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. The hand of God, the invisible hand of God. Acts chapter 4. Let it be known, verse 10, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Again, pointing back to Psalm 118. They're actually living out what God said would happen, living out the prophetic word. Again, finally, Acts chapter Four, verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before it, before it to be done. Acts chapter 5, 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, hanging him on a tree. And finally, Acts 5.30, known to God from eternity are all his works. God has a perfect plan. God's will will prevail, and God gave us his promise. Now, what, what's fascinating to me in this, Jesus knew who would betray him, but never mentioned it to anyone. When he said, one of you will betray me, the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. When Jesus gave him that sop, that bread, he went out and it was night. But he said, what you do, do quickly. But none of the disciples understood that. They said, maybe he's going out to buy something for the poor. Jesus never mentioned that. In fact, at that last supper, he was offering to Judas another opportunity to come back, to repent. But Judas, Jesus, woe, he was having me born. So right there, Jesus managing, if you will, the will of God toward Judas. None of this. He didn't force Judas to do that. He didn't, nobody knew about it. Nobody, would, nobody suspected Judas. And then I think of Jesus knew what Peter would do. And he warned him about it. 
Peter said, Lord, why can't I not come with you? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And so as Peter then went into the courtyard of the high priest, when John had him let in, the servant girl was at the door said, were you not also one of his, this man's disciples? Peter said, no. And then as Peter's standing there warming himself by the fire, therefore they said to him, are you not also one of his disciples? And it says, Peter denied it and said, I am not. And then as he's, he, remember, he lifted up his sword and struck the high priest's servants. His name was Malchus. And so as one of, the, one of the high priest's servants is there in that courtyard, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, Malchus's relative of some kind, he says, did I not see you in the garden? Aren't you one of them with him? And then it says this in John. <laughs> We've been there. Then Peter denied again and immediately a rooster crowed over nature, the demonic realm, and all human beings. It happened just as Jesus said it would. Blows my mind. God is sovereign. In God's providence, he has a perfect plan. His will will prevail. God has made us a promise. On and on go the prophecies concerning the promises of God that he would send a Savior into the world to save us from our sin. God did just that. He sent his only son according to his perfect plan, a plan that is still being fulfilled according to his perfect will. Nothing has swerved it so far. And if time were to go on for another 10,000 times 10,000 years, nothing will stop its perfect fulfillment. Every jot and tittle of what God has promised will be accomplished. Now, I do hope the grand finale is not going to be 10,000 times 10,000 years away. Can I hear an amen? Um, but until then, bring this to a close. Until then, I want to trust God's wisdom in good times and in bad times. I want to trust God's wisdom when I do understand and when I don't understand. I want to trust him when I do see his hand working in my life and when I can't see anything that's going on. The words of St. Thomas Aquinas say it well, quote, In time, we can discover that God in his almighty providence can bring good from all the consequences of evil caused by his creatures. From the greatest moral evil ever committed, the rejection and murder of God's only son caused by the sins of all people, God, by his grace that abounded all the more, brought about the greatest of goods, the glorification glorification of Christ and our redemption. That's what happened. We're going to take communion this morning. Like Job said, if I can go back to this, look, I go forward. He's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns right hand, I cannot see him. Verse 10, we didn't get this, but... He knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. I'm in his hands. Now, here's what I wrote for myself. I am hungry to know. I am humbled that I might grow. And I'm so thankful 
when it starts to show. I'm hungry to know, I'm humble to grow, and I'm thankful when it starts to show. I'm thankful that where sin abounded, grace superabounded toward me. I'm thankful because I know that all things will work together for good because I love God and I want to go according to his purposes. He has a perfect plan for my life. His will will prevail for me. He has made a promise to me. I'm thankful because I know that the testing of my faith will produce fruit. I'm thankful because though I may suffer many things, I'm not ashamed because I know in whom I believe and I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. I'm thankful because I know God has a plan for me before I was ever born. As he said to Jeremiah and as the psalmist said, my frame was not hidden from you, I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance when being yet unformed and in your book my days were written when as yet there were none of them. God had a plan for me before I was ever born. As with Jeremiah, Paul said, God called me from my mother's womb. I am thankful that God knew me before I was born and he had a plan and a purpose for my life before I was ever birthed. I'm thankful because the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose me in him before the foundation of the world that I should be holy without blame before him in love. He's predestined me according to his son to be his adopted son. These are all things that God's promised to me, and I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of my sins. I'm thankful that he's made known to me the mysteries of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, unveiling that for me. I'm thankful that I've obtained inheritance that I've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. These are all things that come because I just believe in Jesus. God gave us his promise through his son. And in believing in him, all these things become realities and true for each and every one of us. I want to trust God when I can't see him and when I can I want to trust him when things are good and when things are bad. I want to put my life right into the providence that I, as I understand it, and let him take the things of my mind and bring them to my heart where I meet him in these dark places and he begins to shine in my life and I go deeper and deeper and deeper in my relationship with him. Why? Because I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he's able to do exceedingly abundantly all that I ask or think. I believe he's working out things according to his will. He's working in me to will and to do what pleases him. He's doing all these things. Why? Because I believe in Jesus. I believe in him. I'm thankful that now for a little while, if need be, I've been grieved by various trials. I know in whom I believe. I know that when I'm tested, I shall come forth as gold. Do you believe that? Do you know that this morning? It's true. It's not true, however, if you don't know Jesus. See, all these promises are, are in him, yea and amen. All the things promised have come through, his, through the, the Son of God. So I would ask if you would, just for a moment, before we take communion, because if there's anyone here, would you bow your heads, believers, brothers and sisters, and just pray for a moment, because there's a battle that goes on in the spiritual realm over which God has complete control and yet he allows these things to bring about the salvation of many. And today, if you're here and you do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, may I say to you, God gave him for you personally. He has you on his heart 
today. And how you will come to him is very simple. You're going to acknowledge that you have sin. Acknowledge that you're separated because of sin. You're guilty before God. And the things you've thought, the things you've said, and the things you've done. You're accountable for that, and you know that. And the Holy Spirit will be convicting you and has been of sin because you don't believe in Jesus. He's the only one who can forgive you your sin. So it's very simple. You're going to ask God to forgive you of your sin. You're going to ask him to then fill you with his Holy Spirit and bring you into the forever family of God. And if that's for you today, you, have not, you know you're not right with God. This is the most important decision that you will ever make, bar none. So three simple things that I'm going to ask you to do. Just raise your hand and say, yes, I, want to, I need to get right with God today. I want to say yes to him. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to stand up in obedience to the gospel and realize, hey, I want to be a part of this forever family. I want to stand in obedience to the gospel and give my life over to Christ. So I'm going to ask you to raise up your hand, stand up, and then walk up to one of the tables where there will be someone there to pray for you and pray with you as you bring your life and give it into the hands of the almighty, forever, loving, gracious God. So as we're praying, just a moment, if that's you, would you raise up your hand and say, yes, today, I want to ask God. I want to say yes to Jesus and find in him the things that you've been listening to today and probably for many other, at many other times. Yes, I want to do that today. We're praying. We know it's a battle. We all went through it to some degree or another. Even hearing, thinking, you haven't yet made that decision. One more, more. Just stay up your hand. I don't want to miss that, so make sure just to keep it up for a moment. Now, we're going to take communion. And as we do that, this is a great time also. If you need prayer of any kind, we know prayer is powerful. It's partnering with God. If you need prayer, you can walk up now if you'd like or after. We want to pray with you. We want to make sure that your requests, your needs are being brought to God in prayer. As you receive the emblems, as they're passed out, we're going to sing a song. Would you just hold those? Because communion really is a picture of the body of Christ. So we want to take those together. And so once we all receive them, I'll come up and we'll take them as the body of Christ together. Let's do it.